you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. Chris Voss here from the com. The Chris Voss Show.com. Hey, we're coming here with a podcast. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. Be sure to go see the YouTube video version. It's youtube.com forward slash Chris Voss. See us on Clubhouse, goodreads.com forward slash Chris Voss. And on uh, just about every group you can find on uh, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, et cetera, et cetera. We've got a most amazing author on today. I've been really excited to have her. I grew up in an age of air, <laughs> airlines. It was uh, at the very end of this beautiful sort of romantic era of flying. And I, I'm lucky enough, fortunately, to remember a time where you could go through an airport without going through massive security measures, TSA, and everything else. And it was still fun, which I can't say the same for now. So it's great that our current author who's come before us is sharing this wonderful story in this book, highlighting some of the beautiful times in our history, some of the great moments in uh, women's challenges and triumphs over those challenges. And uh, I want to welcome her here today. It's Julia Cook, and she's written the book, The Jet age story of the women of pan am come fly the world is the title her journalism has been published in time smithsonian and the condé nast traveler she's the author of the other side of paradise life in the new cuba and a daughter of a former pan am executive and she lives in woodstock vermont welcome to the show julia how are you i'm good thanks how are you chris Good, good. And to give us your plug so people can find you on the interwebs and order up this wonderful book. Sure. Yeah. My website is juliacook.com, cook with an E. The website for the book is comeflytheworld.com. And I can be found on social medias uh, as Julia C. Cook, C-O-O-K-E. There you go. And give us what motivated you to write this book. You've written stuff before. What brought you to this project and sparked your imagination or interest in writing it? It was really the women themselves that brought me to it, but in a roundabout way. As you mentioned, my dad had worked for Pan Am until I was about nine years old, which was how old I was when Pan Am went bankrupt. But I hadn't really thought that much about the airline until I saw that the Pan Am Historical Foundation was going to host an event at the TWA terminal at JFK. I don't know if you've been there or if any of your listeners have been there. If you have, absolutely gorgeous. It's this incredible mid-century modern building that's just fantastic. So I'd always wanted to go there. And when I went to this event, it wasn't, it was an event to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the first time the Beatles flew to the US on Pan Am, of course. I wound up just talking to these women who were, who had been former flight crew on Pan Am. They were in their seventies. They were bright and smart and totally sophisticated and had the best sense of humor. They were really daring. And they talked about history with this level of knowledge and intimacy that I found so compelling. And I just wanted to know everything about them. So Mm -hmm. they were what they were what initially, they were the spark. And I think that uh, area has been turned into a hotel now where you can go really soak in that whole sort of area. You You can even you can soak in an infinity pool on the huh. rooftop so wow. while you watch airplanes take off. So yeah, this was before that time, but, and I actually have, I moved away from New York in the years since, since it, it opened. So I actually haven't even been, and I'm dying to get there. 
Like I said, there's a romanticism to flying. At least this might have used to have been. When I was a kid, my parents would take us to the airport and we watched them flying in and out. And it was just like magical as a child. It, did, would you say this book kind of profiles maybe the golden age of airlines in, in the industry? It does in a way. And more more specifically, it profiles the women of the golden age of, of travel. I think that there are a group of women who haven't really been examined or profiled in the way that I think they, they should have been. They're really fascinating women. They had a level of access and involvement in these huge moments of history that, that hasn't really been looked at until now. And these women were world travelers and they hung out with diplomats. Back then, the people who could afford to fly on airlines were people of, of wealth, education, experience. They were global people, people that there was, there was, they were highly educated. It was unlike when I get on an airplane, <laughs> I just bring everybody down. No. So give us a, a broad overview of the book. If you would, yeah. So the book starts in um, about 1966. It covers uh, the nine years from 1966 to 1975, basically, and it really profiles the the lives of five women in particular, uh, specifically, who all worked for Pan Am at different points in time in that in that time period, and they all really experienced different things within the airline. So the book it it talks about women's movement into the ranks of management. It talks about women who flew um, on really dangerous Vietnam War flights. And it talks about women who the legal battles that uh, a number of stewardesses pioneered in order to be able to keep their jobs and to dismantle the really pretty sexist requirements that were in place in 1966. And so it chronicles a a really important moment in time in both the airline industry and in American life also. This was the era of when the civil rights movement was really impacting people's lives, changing the lives of Black Americans everywhere. And when the Vietnam War protest movement was kicking off in tandem with the, the Vietnam more itself. So it really chronicles this changing period in American life and the way those changes were felt by the airline industry, by the women who worked in it, and more specifically by the specific five women that I am profiling. And that's awesome. You sat down with these women, you got their stories, their experiences, some of their insights and some. What makes uh, a lot of the women who work for Pan Am really exemplary or special? They're an incredible group of really curious women who are to this day incredibly open to new experiences. They're all really very bright women in that moment in time in the the early 1960s, mid-1960s. The requirements to work on Pan Am were both physical, and a lot has been made in the promotion of this book of the physical requirements of these women. They were required to be a certain height, a certain weight, and really stereotypically pretty pretty beautiful. But they were also required to be really smart, quick thinkers. Uh, They were required to have a college education and to speak two languages. So this was the statistic that I cite in the book is that in the mid-1960s, or I think late 1960s, 10% of the women on Pan Am had graduate degrees. Now, in the American public as a whole, only about 7% of the American women had graduated from college. So this is a really elite group of women. And so to this day, they're an incredibly interesting, curious, uh, world-hungry group of people who really just want to travel and, and get out and do things and meet interesting people and, and see interesting things. And that's really unique to them. I was, we had J.A. Jance on the show. She's written like 65 books, and she she had talked about growing up in that era. And the social pressure for a lot of women or expectations, whatever you want to call it, was you find a man, you get married, you have kids, you go in the kitchen, you don't work a job. And we talked about on her show about how she was put off for 12 years 
by number one, her husband who said, I'll be the only writer in this house. And then by her work where she studied. So a lot of these women, would you say that some of this is helping them escape from some of that social thing where they can go do what they want? They can travel the world. They can meet and learn all sorts of exotic things. Is that a... Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I think you know, a lot of what I heard from a lot of my interview subjects was was that they felt like there were they had very limited options. They were able to they could get married and have a family. They could work as a as one of three professions. They could be a nurse, they could be a teacher, they could be a secretary. And then in came stewardessing. And that was also socially acceptable, but it, it gave you a ticket to the world. It got you out of your hometown. It put you in strange and interesting situations. It was an exciting thing. I think it's easy to forget that at the start of the 1960s, women were getting married incredibly young. They were in the tiniest numbers in colleges and graduate schools, and, and they were in higher numbers in, in colleges. But still, law schools, being a doctor, these were not careers. They were careers that women could pursue but they knew that they would be fighting, that they'd be fighting the current, that they'd be swimming upstream. So, you know, a lot of the types of really curious, interesting women, you know, also knew that they could become stewardesses and not have not face that kind of social pressure and jet around the world. So it seems pretty appealing. Oh, yeah. See the world, have fun. I've, I was engaged to a, a flight. Is a flight attendant or flight stewardess? I get yelled at for both sides of it. Now it's flight attendant. <laughs> now the right word to use is flight attendant. But the, the, the part of why I use the word as to stewardess is to denote the historical era that I'm talking about. Yeah, I figured I want to identify that. So I had one gal I was uh, engaged to. She oversaw flight attendants at uh, Delta in Salt Lake City at the hub. And of course, she'd have to go work for people who called in sick. And then I did another flight attendant years earlier. But yeah, I would get yelled at if I used the wrong terminology. And I respect that. So. Yeah. <laughs> but it was interesting because I think in your in the time you profile in the book, are they considered more flight stewardesses or flight attendants? One of the first things that happened to me when I was talking to um, to the women that I was interviewing. So I, I, I told you about being at the TWA terminal. So then I just wound up after that, my, my process was I just started crashing their parties. I would go to the luncheons that they hosted and I would go to the, the conventions. They have the Pan Am Alumni Association hosts conventions and conferences and luncheons. And I just started going to them. And uh, one of the first things that happened to me was when I was, I, I referred to one of the women that I was talking to as a flight attendant. And she said, no, dear, I was a stewardess. It was a different job back then. And I, I respected that. That's just her opinion. There were, are women that I'm that appear in my book, for example, both Tori Werner and Hazel Bowie, who are, who are two main subjects of the book. They were both stewardesses and flight attendants because they kept flying for 40 years. They are the, the reason why the much more you know gender neutral term flight attendant became the term that is you know used today. Yeah, that's interesting. Usually, I think the perception was from some of the people that in the flight attendant era of people that I dated, they're like stewardesses serve food. And I was like, we're not servers. And I'm like, they're I, I don't know. It's none of my business, but there was a time when flight travel was beautiful and there was so much they did on the plane and it just seemed like it was all first class sort of experience, but no one wants to dismiss them as just waitresses of the sky. But that was what I was using. <laughs> Yeah, no, and it's interesting. interesting. So that there's a real perception that, that that was the case back then, and that that's the case now. That there's a whole replacement song that that goes waitress in the sky, waitress in the sky, etc. You don't want to hear me sing. 
But the point is, that's a real, that was a perception then, it's a perception now, and it's just as wrong in both eras because flight crews are, so a lot of what my book, the argument that my book makes and the proof, what it proves is that back then, international diplomacy, th these women were really acting, stewardesses were acting as what we would now term, they were doing soft diplomacy, what we would now call soft diplomacy. And if you think about the, the places that they were flying around a globe that was undergoing massive changes and that was embroiled in not one, but two global conflicts. There was the Cold War and the Vietnam War. All across Africa and Asia, countries had just been, were being decolonized in huge numbers in the 50s and early 60s. So there were all of these new countries who were figuring out how they wanted to interact with the rest of the world. And the air treaties that were being negotiated put these women in a lot of really dicey and fascinating situations. That's on one level. On a whole nother level, they were, they were in charge of flights that were filled with diplomats, refugees, soldiers in, in the Vietnam War flights that I write about, these women were flying into an active war zone. So they, they were really far from waitresses in the sky and they were doing so much more. I think it's I think it's great that your book profiles this and really puts the rest some of those different machinations that people seem to imagine about what what was really going on back then. Or one thing you you put in the front of your book and a thing that was unique to Pan Am was uh, their flight routes. Do you want to tell us more about what what made yeah, them special? Totally, Pan Am was the only American airline that flew exclusively international. Routes. There were other American airlines that flew internationally. For example, TWA had flight routes to Europe and Braniff had flight routes to South America. But Pan Am was the only plane, the only airline that uh, it, when you stepped, when you set foot on a Pan Am plane, you were absolutely certain that you were going to get off, that the next ground that you would step on would be a foreign country. So the, And they were the only airline, the first air, American airline and the first international airline to operate a, a flight that looped around the world. So you could fly all the way around the world from New York across Europe and, and Asia and then back to LA, or you could loop the other way around. And it was the only airline that did that. And so these women are getting to travel the world. They're getting to meet all these diplomats and all these different things. You even profile some of the different things with the war that went on and some of the different ways they rescued orphans and everything else. What are some of the splashy and serious adventures or misadventures some of these women had? So they really, they ran the gamut. Throughout the 60s, airplanes were fired on while ferrying American troops around Southeast Asia amid global conflicts in Asia, but also in, in Africa and the Biafran War and in other conflicts. They were hijacked to Cuba. Cuba in the golden era of plane hijacking. One of the main women in the book, Tori Werner, who I, I mentioned earlier, who flew for a very long time, was caught up in a diplomatic kidnapping incident between two countries in West Africa. So in, in the 1970s, other women were going to uh, Cold War Moscow, where they played games that they like shake the KGB, because they all knew that they were being followed. They went to the circus and they waited in line for rations with other Soviet women. There was a lot of, there was fun, but there was also really Really serious, really, really serious work. They were flying in, in the Vietnam War. They were flying men into an active war zone. They were flying them into war. And they took that very seriously. And as you mentioned, a bit of soft diplomacy. So they were face of democracy to a lot of countries, peoples, diplomats, people who are traveling among countries. They're almost a representation maybe of American democracy. 
They absolutely were. And, and the airline was. There's a quote in the book from a CIA agent that who, who in the 1960s uh, and 70s said that in some countries, Pan Am was more uh, easily recognized than Coca-Cola. So I think it's easy for us to forget now 30 some years, 30, almost 30 years since the airline went under that, that that was the case. But that was certainly true. Yeah. And anybody who's been in New York has seen that iconic Pan Am building that used to be like a monument to that sort of the air age, the golden part of the air age. Absolutely. Although now it's the MetLife building. So a lot of people in New York wouldn't even know that it was once the Pan Am building. <laughs> That's, true. That's true. So one of the issues that these stewardesses has, they're, they're living their best life. They're traveling. There's, little, there's danger. You post some great pictures in the book of some of the different adventures that they're on. One thing that was interesting to me is, and I was just going from the pictures that you'd posted, it seems like there is a lot of diversity in, in pan, racial diversity in Pan Am's flight stewardess. Is that a correct analogy or am I just getting that wrong off the pictures? So basically, I, I, that, that does require a little bit of context though. Like all of the airlines of the era, Pan Am only began to hire women of color in larger numbers when they were compelled by the EEOC to do so mm. after 1965. There were very small numbers of women of color on any airlines before then. Mm. But after that, they, they did work hard to hire women of different backgrounds in part because they were flying to so many different places and, and they wanted people to see to see Pan Am as an international, diverse plane. That would make sense. If you're flying the world that's diverse with all sorts of different people, you hopefully have a stewardess class of people that get, that'll reflect can, that can absolutely reflect that as well, and that can help make different different passengers feel at home. One of the challenges the women had is they're, they're living their best life, but there's a cap on like age limit. There's a cap on cap on height, the cap on weight. I certainly wouldn't make it, but <laughs> my dream. I had to go find other dreams. The one of the things that happens is uh, they end up being a part or help shaping the American feminist movement because they have to deal with some of these issues of discrimination Tell exactly us yeah so in this is part of why my book deals with this really critical moment of, of time from 1966 to 1975 because one of the big things that changed in this time period was that the way that stewardesses were able to do their jobs so in in the mid early and mid 1960s the requirements were as i mentioned they were weight they were height they were beauty but they were also that the women be under 26 at the time of hire and that they be unmarried. And the airline was entitled to fire its employees, the, the flight crew, these stewardesses, if they got married or by the time they turned 35. So this was intended both to keep them as a group of employees cheap. It meant that the airlines didn't have to pay for expensive health insurance claims or dependents or anything like that. But it also was intended to, it was just openly sexist. It was, they were trying to keep their stewardesses young and pretty and, and nominally available. The women very logically said, that's bunk. I'd like to keep my job. Thank you. I, I really enjoy it. And they took the airlines to court. And at first they were turned down. The They lost their court cases. The judges who were by and large pretty conservative still in the late 50s and early 1960s agreed with the airlines that the airlines also put up really comprehensive defenses. And let me tell you about reading some of those court cases. It's been, it was one of the most interesting parts of um, my research was to read the way that the, the different things that the judges, that, that the airlines um, said as a reason why they had to hire only unmarried women. My favorite was that they said that, that they, that they got too many complaints from husbands and they didn't have the switchboard. They didn't have enough, the bandwidth necessary to deal with the amount of men who would call and say, when's my wife going to be home? Where do you have her off to now? And there were a couple of judges who actually bought into that at first. And then eventually over the course of the sixties, one judge said, how is a wife calling in with a complaint 
any different from a husband calling in with a complaint. This is not a good enough, not a good enough reason not to hire men. Eventually, this is a long-winded way to get around to saying that these lawsuits that the women brought against the airlines on the basis of gender discrimination, basically, set the legal precedent for gender-based labor law discrimination. There you go. Because they were definitely, you know, leading industry. Women are mostly controlling this industry. As you mentioned before, the other women that are in industry are just relegated to secretaries and other low-level positions. And these guys are high-profile women. And uh, yeah, I think it was the the Employment Act. I, I forget what era it was issued. It was 1965. So this was right in that. The EEOC, exactly. And initially the EEOC had not been intended to um, address the claims of women. It was, mm-hmm. it was primarily about racial equity, but the, the women stewardesses, in fact, were some of the first people through at the doors who said, we really love our jobs. We want to be able to keep it. We think that these requirements are sexist. Please help us dismantle them. I know they had to add sex later. To that, to the EEO. Exactly, to the clauses, absolutely. Yeah. How did stewardesses of this jet age really define the profession that still lingers with us today? Yeah, so these very lawsuits really opened up the the doors of the job to a different, you know, women of different ages, women who wanted to accrue seniority, men, eventually in 1972, the it, the lawsuits that were brought by a women of color, by black women with the NAACP at the end of the 1950s and the beginning of the 60s, opened the doors to diverse you know, women of diverse backgrounds. Today, what that ha- has led to was flight crews that much more accurately re- reflect America. Back in the 19, early 1960s, flight crews were really just young white women and now flight crews are are us yeah it's it's everybody when exactly. when you're flying so uh, yeah and they have such a hell of a job now especially with the anti-maskers and they put up with so much shit you know, it's so easy to forget. I, I think it's been really interesting to watch this, the poor flight crews that have to deal with the anti-maskers these days. God, it's easy to forget that flight crews are first, are first responders. They're frontline workers. They're there for our safety. In reality, they're often treated like these customer service or again, waitress in the sky, people who were there to bring us drinks and, and food. In reality, if we're getting from point A to point B safely and nothing's going wrong, because there are a million things that can go wrong in, in the air still today, the fact that things don't go totally off the rails far more often is really a testament to the hard work that these people are doing. And it's easy to forget that. Yeah, it's a, they're there for safety reasons and everything else. I fortunately dating a few flight attendants, I would hear about all the different things and, and things that they would do and uh, some of the issues they would have. And yeah, that because of that, every time I'm on a plane, I'm nice to the flight attendants because they're great people and they're, and they're doing a, a great service. And if anything happens on the plane, you're going to need their help. So absolutely. Um, there you go. For my usual help is I just need uh, an extra thing of vodka. So can I get the bottle? <laughs> and they're always sweet. And they, they're like, you look like an alcoholic. We'll give you the whole <laughs> bottle, Chris, the little mini bottle. But you profiled some uh, beautiful women in the book. Some had worked up to 40 years. So by them being able to overcome those issues of prejudice and discrimination, they were able to have beautiful careers and live their lives. And like I said, the, the women that I dated, one of the things they just loved was that adventure of the job, being able to go to different cities. Some of them would be in three different cities in a, in a day. 
and they would stay in the hotel and they'd go to down to Soho or wherever and they'd get to adventure around. Of course, the airlines give them uh, cab money and everything else so they can get around. They've got a nice expense account. I don't know if they still do. I, it seems like everything's everyone's clawing back all the fun stuff. It was fun and they love the adventure. You, I think you become a much better and broader minded person when you travel. Absolutely. I could not agree more. It, it's interesting. I, I said that earlier that, that one of the things that these women all have in common is the sense of curiosity and, and their openness to new experience. I found that really inspiring. I, I, I had never met a huge group of 70-something, 80-something women who were all just open to new experience still at that age. And I, I really respected that. But there's this one quote in the book that I found that I think really encompasses what you're talking about, which is this woman <laughs> told a ma- told Ms. Magazine back in, in the 70s that she said, I've always thought it was ironic that we have this docile image. Maybe in the past that was true, but most of the women I know began to fly because they were just too independent and curious about the world to sit around in a nine-to-five job getting cramps in their shoulders. Yeah. Yeah, with J.A. Jance, uh, she was sidelined for, uh, what, 12 years, I think. I hope I'm getting her name right. I, I, I have to check it, but she was sidelined for 12 years. She's put out 65 books since then, and you just look at her and go, wow, if she would have had those 12 years, who knows how, what a, even more she would have written prolifically. Yeah. And uh, just so much talent contribution that can come to the world. One of the uh, one of the other things that I heard in watching some of your interviews was there was a quote from one of the women that you interviewed, and it was about how when she flies, she doesn't book a return flight immediately. I thought that was really interesting. That was when I knew that I had to write this book. When I met this woman uh, at the TWA terminal and I offered her. So what happened was we were there and I had had driven my car from my apartment in Manhattan out to JFK. And I said, do you want to ride back home? And because she was also, she also lived in Manhattan, not far from where I lived. And she said, of course. And I said, so you didn't take the, the train out here. You don't have a return ticket. And she said, oh, darling, I never buy a return ticket. You never know what's going to happen. And I thought, you you are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I think I learned that from some of my girlfriends. There was whenever I go to a big city, and I, I usually take a camera, so I get like an ice can or something that I'll rent. I used to buy them, and then I'm just like, you can rent these, and then you don't have to have them laying around all the time. And so usually, what I'll do if I've got to fly back. I'll try and spend the day in the city. And so usually there's either a shuttle I can call and it'll be there within a half an hour or you can grab a taxi to the airport. But usually I just take my bag and I've got a little gig bag and I wander around, shoot stuff, take pictures and just experience the city like Chicago. I'll walk around the bean, go to the pizza place and just wander around and soak it in for a whole day. And then right before I got to jump the plane, but I, I usually make time to do that. One time I went to I think it was St. Louis or someplace. And I spent, I had to speak for just, you know, a couple hours on stage, but I basically booked it for three days so I could eat as much barbecue as I possibly could. That sounds fun. That was crazy. The, why do you think the Pam, the Pan Am legacy is still so so nostalgic? Why do, why does that bring back that golden age era is because it's because flying now is awful. No, so it's so interesting. I, I think I thought a lot about that as I was doing this book. And I think there are, there are so many different layers to that question, I think, or to the answer to that question. And in the first place, I think that anything after anything was anything international really held a, a waft of glamour back then. This was after World War II, after the post-war stability of the 50s. And so in the 60s, really, the international was seen as very glamorous. And Pan Am was exclusively international. And in, in the second place. There was the glamour of the airline itself. The airline worked really hard to cultivate that glamour. It hired the best architects to do its corporate headquarters and designers to do forms. And it really invested a lot in image. So, you know, that has stuck with us. But it's also because on Pan Am, 
in part because of its involvement with these different global conflicts, and in part because of the international roots. It, it, Pan Am flew troops around the world in various conflicts, brought soldiers back home after really harrowing tours of duty. It brought refugees and immigrants from war zones, from the former USSR, from other regions for the first time to their new homes in the US. So for some veterans, refugees, immigrants, and, and many other people with a lot of internationalism in their backgrounds, Pan Am became a really powerful symbol of freedom and change. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a story you told about how at one point the Pan Am was charging a dollar a month or something to transport troops. Yeah. So, so Pan Am's involvement in Vietnam really was one of the big surprises um, to me when I began researching this book. And there's a reason why I was I included so much of that in, in the book, too, because I thought it was really fascinating that there was this contrast between the perception of what of the role that these women played, which was really that it was just really glamorous and that they had all this international fun. And then the reality of it, which is that for a lot of the women, especially those who were stationed, who were who were living on the West Coast and flying out of LAX or SFO, they they were flying in and out of an active war zone. So what happened was Pan Am, like other airlines in the U.S. in that time period, contracted with the U.S. government to fly troops uh, into Vietnam as the troop buildup was happening from 1965 on. In 1966, the DOD announced that it wanted to be able to do a five-day R&R trip for each soldier at some point over the course of his year in country, but that they didn't have the ability to do that until they, they, they just lacked airplanes. So Pan Am stepped in and said, we're going to do that for you. We're going to operate. I think it was something like 18,000, but I, or I, I don't remember actually the specific number of flights per month, but they said they were going to operate a ton of flights every month from Saigon to, from Saigon, Cameron Bay, Da Nang to Hong Kong at first. And they were only going to charge the US government a dollar a month for the first four months. From then on out, they, they charged at cost. But the point is that Pan Am, these planes were required crews. And yeah. those crews were composed of women. So this meant that a ton of women were just flying in and out of, of very dangerous situations. I heard stories of women in planes being shot at. I heard they watched mortar fire below them. They were they watched bodies being loaded into the, the plane underneath them. They helped soldiers with PTSD on board. One woman told me a, a really horrible story about a man who tried to open the rear door of the airplane rather than go back into combat. She had to talk him down from that. And so these women were p- fulfilling these very different roles than what was what they were seen as fulfilling. Real pioneering that sort of stuff, because I think during the Iraq war and stuff, we use some of the airlines, or I think probably in all of yeah. the we've used the airlines uh, to back us up. Exactly. So the U.S. government, unlike other countries where the, the government owns the airline or doesn't own the, the, the there's a what's called a flag carrier, a national flag carrier, which is an airline that's associated with the government. The U.S. doesn't work like that, but the U.S. also doesn't have enough planes to fly troops into a conflict. So there's a standing contract, a standing agreement with the civilian airlines that they will help, that they will you know contract out their services uh, in the event of a war. And one of the things you profile in your book is the the flight out of, I believe these are the Cambodian babies or the Vietnamese babies? Yeah, this was Operation Baby Lift. So it was at the very end of the Saigon or of the Vietnam War. The U.S. had officially left Vietnam a couple of years earlier, but this was in 1975 at the end of just as the North Vietnamese were about to take over South Saigon. And the various orphanages had been uh, struggling to get all of their the children who were slated to be adopted by American families. They were trying to get them out of the country. And there was a log jam and the U.S. Air Force offered to, to send in a plane to bring out um, a couple hundred of them all at once. But that plane crashed. Oh, um, so the next day, it was tragic. It, half of the, the people on board died 
Um, it was a really horrific crash and it, it, it spurred a Connecticut businessman to charter a Pan Am flight out of, you know, to go pick up the survivors of that, that crash and a couple hundred more babies. And that was the beginning of what was called Operation Baby Lift. Eventually, it was a really complicated event in American history for a lot of different reasons that I go into more detail about in the book. But what I found so fascinating about that moment was that there, there were women who were, who were, they were at a hotel room in Hong Kong and they were told that their flight was going to, that they were being reassigned onto a flight that would go into Saigon. And they did not know in that moment whether, why that plane had crashed the day before. All they had heard was that they were going to pick up children who needed them. And they said, yes, they jumped on the plane. And one of the, the interesting facets is that they're saving these kids' life. And evidently they were children of GIs, I think. Or a number of them were. Yeah. And again, this is a really, it's a, man, it's a thorny moment of history because some of them were the children of, of GIs. Some of them were actual orphans. Some of them were not orphans and just got swept up and the paperwork was not well covered. So in, in those cases, it almost looks like a kidnapping. But in, in some of the cases, it was a really, a necessary thing. So that's part of the the complication of the whole, the Operation Baby Lift issue, like, and a moment of time. But yeah. And there was, and there was worry that they would get slaughtered if the... Exactly. uh, Yeah. The rumor in Saigon had it that, that as the the North Vietnamese came, had come through cities to the North, they just were, were slaughtering these half, half American, half Vietnamese, they were, they are American, but these racially mixed children. And so these, the mothers of these children in particular were just terrified. They just wanted their babies to be safe. So they left them, some of them at at orphanages and, and hoped that the orphanages, they knew that Americans and Europeans were adopting a, a number of, of Vietnamese orphans, and so they hoped that their children would be saved. Yeah, and blessed they got those children out because the Viet Cong, they killed a lot of people. And then Cambodia and everything else, the killing fields, et cetera, et cetera. A beautiful book, of course, covering all these different aspects of this era, the challenges. The, this, was, this was a really pivotal time, pivotable, <laughs> pivotal time in our our nation's history. And anything we haven't covered about the book that you'd like to touch on or tease readers with to get the book? I think the only thing that I would say is that it's a moment of time that has a lot of relevance to today, both for what these women did and, and the, the precedent that they set for the ways in which they really claimed uh, independence in a moment that in which it was not given to them. And also it, they were all doing, they were performing this really gritty, dangerous, interesting role while making it look pretty effortless. That was one of the things that I found so fascinating and inspiring about these women. And of course, that there's a cost to that. They were not, they should have gotten this respect <laughs> a long time ago, but my, a lot of them, a number of them were really pleased to be telling me their stories. That was one of the things that I noticed when I began to research this book was that it felt like a, a number of these women that I was profiling were really excited to tell their stories to someone who would take them seriously and not just not just look for the, the glamour in it but also the gravity. And that's what the book tries to do. It tries to cover both. That is awesome. That's what I learned a long time ago with me. It's uh, not all about the glamour with this face. It's (laughs) it's about the hard work too. (laughs) 
but there's the glamour. Uh, so I certainly appreciate you coming on the show and sharing this uh, data with us, Julia, and profiling this age because I still have romanticism in this age. There was a beauty, there was an elegance. I love watching old videos of the movies on the planes and just first class service, the dining, stuff that you don't see on your uh, coach flights these days on Southwest. Oh, really? I like Southwest. No, 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 no uh, darkness to them, but you just see it, just beautiful opulence and elegance. And you're just like, wow, the serving stuff and is, is all stainless steel or whatever. And you're just like, my God, those people were living it up. And uh, it was pretty beautiful. Yeah, it was pretty great. Can we go back to that? At least, or can I at least just get more room on my seat? Like, I think we're moving to the point where we're just going to be standing up in, in flight travel. And God, I wish we could get back to getting rid of the TSA. I get it, but I really don't. <laughs> but I just, I'm so blessed to have lived through so much of an age where you didn't have to have a phone, a mobile phone. Or you didn't have to have some of the things you used to have. And it, it did seem like a better romantic age, but I don't know. They always say you can never go back. Every time I go back, it's, uh, I don't know, for me, it's it, yeah, when I go back to places, it's not quite as fun, but this was certainly de- an interesting age and everything that it did. So thank you for coming and spending some time with us, Julie. Yeah. We certainly appreciate it. I will say these days you got to make your own glamour. It's still, it exists, but but you got to find it yourself. There you go. I work at it every day with this face. Brad Pitt (laughs) calls me and says, uh, hey man, you got any tips for me? And I'm like, dude, there's only so much you you can work with. You work hard, Brad. (laughs) Yeah. If you look at the list of sexiest men, I'm usually like third behind George Clooney and him, but uh, there's that. So give us your plugs so people can find you on the interwebs and order this wonderful book. So the book is Come Fly the World, the Jet Age Story of the Women of Pan Am. It can be found any where fine books are sold. The, the Its website lives on the internet at comeflytheworld.com. And I am Julia Cook. And I, my internet, my social medias are Julia C. Cook on both Instagram and Twitter. There you go. There you go. Thank you, Julia. I was playing Come Fly With Me from Frank Sinatra because I thought that really captured the romanticism, that song, Frank Sinatra, Come Fly With Me. I'm not going to sing. Anyway, guys, be sure to check out the book, The Jet Age Story of the Women of Pan Am. Come Fly the World. And I love the cover. It's, it's just, it captures it perfectly. Oh, you know, those glasses and everything else. So check out the book, guys. Order it up. Refer it to your friends, neighbors, relatives. Go see the video version of this on YouTube.com. Fortune's Chris Voss. Go to Goodreads.com. Fortune's Chris Voss. See all the groups we have on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, wherever where we got all sorts of stuff going on. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. Be sure to wear your mask. Stay safe. And we'll see you guys next time.